Hello, and welcome to the Sustainalytics podcast. My name is Melissa Chase. I'm a marketing specialist here at Sustainalytics. Today, I'll be speaking with Doug Morrow, Director of Thematic Research, and Enrico Colombo, Senior Associate of Asia-Pacific Research here at Sustainalytics, about some of the topics covered in our recent thematic research report, Navigating ESG Issues in Australia, Identifying Risks, and Seizing Opportunities. Thank you, Doug and Enrico, for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. So, Enrico, let's start with you. What is happening in Australia? Uh, You and Doug identified three main themes in this report. So what were they and why are they important in the Australian context? Yes, three issues have dominated the conversations in the responsible investment community in Australia in recent years, and they have served as engagement flashpoints for Australian investors. Energy and climate, as Australia is highly exposed to physical risks, such as droughts, fires, and extreme weather events. Human rights and the historic legislation that passed last year on modern slavery. And ethics in the financial sector because of a string of scandal and the landmark inquiry last year. Mm-hmm. So can you tell us um, a bit more about the, the climate issues and the risks and opportunities that investors are seeing there? Sure. We noted three central and interrelated factors to consider. First is the emission-intensive nature of the Australian economy due to reliance on coal for electricity, mining operations, um, and for being the third largest exporter of fossil fuel in the world. Second is the policy vacuum at the federal level, which is putting Australia at risk of missing the Paris Agreement targets. Uh, But at the same time, there is also considerable action occurring at more local levels. And third, there's been a renewables boom over the past 10 years. Clean energy accounted for 9% of electricity in 2005, and it grew to more than 20% in 2019, thanks to policy support in the past and thanks also to declining costs, which make renewables already cheaper than any other generation method in Australia. The key element for continuous success, though, uh, moving forward, is to have sensible government policies to modernize and support the power grid uh, and accommodate for more renewables. Great. So you've mentioned the policy vacuum at the federal level. Can you speak a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, So what has happened in the um, Australian context is that there hasn't really been a clear policy signal from the federal government and the targets have been patchy and the instruments over the past years have been fairly weak compared to um, international peers. A national energy guarantee legislation, uh, which was uh, supposed to put into place some targets to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and to improve reliability of the power grid, was uh, dropped last year. And there hasn't been any other legislative measure put in place to move Australia uh, from emission-intensive economy into a lower carbon economy. At the same time, though, at the state and territory level, there have been uh, significant initiatives from uh, state governments. Um, South Australia is a good example of that, and the the state is actually uh, aiming for 100% renewables by 2030. Um, And there are similar initiatives in other states. So we see a bit of a a disconnect there in terms of of what's happening at local uh, levels and what is happening at the federal level. And as we were writing the report, um, we actually made a comparison or, or we said that it's um, reminiscent of the situation in the U.S. 
Right. So where the the federal government might not be taking swift action, the the gap is being made up by at the state level or at the the local level. That's right. It's quite interesting. Yeah. Um, So switching gears, you also looked at ethical scandals um, in the banking industry in Australia. Can you elaborate a bit on some of the associated issues and the outcomes um, in that area? Sure. A Royal Commission inquiry was announced in December 2017, and throughout the 2018, with uh, investigations and hearings, it really rocked the industry and it unveiled a series of misconduct and non-compliance from uh, banks and financial institutions, as well as uh, ethical lapses and inadequate customer management. There were various various issues that were highlighted, uh, from poor integrity and accountability to the wrong remuneration schemes and incentives, and widespread conflicts of interest. As a result, public confidence and trust in the sector have been significantly eroded. What has happened in response um, to that inquiry, which was concluded earlier in 2019, is that banks have paid out over 10 billion Australian dollars in Um, compensation to customers, and they've also accelerated uh, restructuring plans that were already put in place, but that have been uh, ramped up in response to the misconduct unveiled. Um, Nonetheless, there are challenges with the implementation of these turnaround strategies, and litigation and regulatory enforcement are increasing, and so issues remain also in terms of compliance particularly around money laundering. Right. So it sounds like the the banking industry still has a bit of a hill to climb with respect to coming out of the scandals that they experienced last year. Uh, Definitely. We're seeing provisions um, made from institutions that are increasing over time. Uh, We're seeing more lawsuits and uh, definitely the spotlight and the reputational uh, exposure of these institutions is is persisting. Mm -hmm. Okay. The third issue that was covered in the report was the issue of modern slavery, and that seems to have had some particular resonance in Australia. Um, Can you speak about that briefly? And what is the Australian government doing to address this particular issue? This is one area where Australia has shown leadership uh, with the introduction of the Modern Slavery Act in late 2018. Few other countries in the world have similar legislation, and Australian law is actually quite strong requiring companies to report on their efforts to eradicate human rights abuses in their operations and in their supply chains. Uh, The Australian government is also going to report on their efforts uh, in terms of federal procurement. There is a moral imperative to act here uh, and a huge role for businesses and investors to play. In addition, there are also clear reputational risks at play, but also opportunities to strengthen uh, brands and to get better visibility for companies Uh, and more efficiency along their value chains. Investors will have to report on their portfolios, and so we are working with them to help them monitor these risks. In the report, we suggest a simplified three-step process to address modern slavery in portfolios. Um, We also outlined some elements that we consider best practice uh, management from companies, which go from integrating human rights in standard procurement processes to providing grievance mechanisms and setting measurable targets for improvement over time. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you so much for uh, walking us through these these three main issues that are facing uh, investors in Australia. Now, Doug, let's turn to you. In this report, you took a deep dive comparing the Australian market to other markets. What did you find? Uh, thanks, Melissa. Yeah, I mean, we took a look and compared the Australian equity market as proxied by the S&P ASX 200 against 
um, markets in Canada, the United States, the UK, and globally using the FTSE All World. And to sum it up, we essentially found that the ASX 200 is is much less risky than we thought. So that's not to suggest that there's not material ESG risk exposure for benchmark investors in Australia, but rather the issue is that when we look at their weighted the index's weighted score, which takes into account the um, index weight of all companies uh, multiplied by their ESG risk rating score, the S&P ASX 200 actually comes out on top. In other words, it has it had the lowest weighted score of um, all the indexes that we considered. So. I think this was interesting and somewhat surprising because I think normally most investors would associate Australia with higher levels of ESG risk rather than lower levels, just given the concentration of materials companies on the index and, um, as Enrico mentioned, the um, you know the coal-centric nature of electricity generation. But yeah, when you crunch the numbers, it actually comes out on top. Interesting. That's interesting. So I see that in the last section of the report, um, you've also conducted a bit of a portfolio analysis integrating Sustainalytics ESG risk ratings. So can you talk to us a bit about the potential approaches that you suggested? Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. So we designed three different strategies for, um, you know, for the market and our clients to consider in the context of operationalizing, if you will, the ESG risk ratings in in, uh, equity strategy. The first was a high conviction ESG strategy. Obviously, in portfolio management right now, high conviction or high discipline portfolios are um, are extremely popular. So we wanted to play play off of that a little bit. So we essentially built a portfolio that consisted of the top 20 names out of the index, so out of the S&P ASX 200, based on their ESG score. And there was really no attempt at all to hedge industry exposure. So we did get some pretty dramatic swings, as you would probably expect compared to the benchmark. I think it was 44% of the portfolio was actually in real estate. So um, it was mostly illustrative just to see what the strategy would look like. Um, but nevertheless, when you um, when you backtest this strategy against the market, you get some pretty substantial outperformance. So we saw a 63% active return compared to the uh, ASX 200, but that came at uh, the expense of pretty substantial uh, tracking error. So over 8 Point three points in annualized uh, tracking error. Um, and obviously, when you look at the ESG side, the portfolio had much lower uh, ESG risk than the benchmark, just given the, uh, the nature of the um, construction process. Uh, we also built an enhanced passive strategy. So unlike the high conviction approach, this one consists of all the companies on the benchmark. It's just that their weights are adjusted to, uh, to reflect uh, their performance in our ESG model. So here, we still managed to get an active return of just over 11% against uh, the S&P ASX uh, 200. We had a modest improvement in Sharpe ratio, uh, suggesting um, you know slight improvement in, uh, in risk-adjusted returns, and a much tighter tracking error, so only 1.6 um, points of annualized tracking error compared to uh, over 8 for the, uh, for the high-conviction approach. Uh, and also, again, when you look at the ESG side of things, this portfolio had a um, weighted ESG risk rating score of, of 22.5 compared to 23.4 uh, for the benchmark. So essentially, I guess the main message here, similarly to the high conviction approach, is that you can essentially um, potentially have your cake and eat it too in the sense that you're looking at the prospect of outperformance while also minimizing ESG risk. And then the last strategy in the paper 
It's a thematic climate change strategy. So here we designed a portfolio that specifically selects companies that have either um, minimal exposure to climate change risk, or we selected companies that have substantial exposure but are managing it well, if that makes sense. So it's, it's looking at companies that really have, have no exposure or companies that are managing their exposure well. And we back-tested that against the market. We uh, Over our investment period, which went back to January 2014, all the way out to the end of July 2019, this particular portfolio had an active return uh, of uh, 5% or just over 1% annualized, uh, tracking error of uh, 2.6 uh, points annualized. And on this portfolio, instead of looking at ESG scores, we looked at carbon risk rating scores, just given its um, its nature and it was a climate change portfolio. And when you run the numbers here, you see the portfolio had a weighted carbon risk rating score of 7.6 compared to 11.2. So again, a pretty substantial improvement in carbon risk compared to the benchmark. So yeah, that's a brief summary of the three uh, model portfolios that we designed for this report. Thanks. Those certainly sound like interesting approaches for investors to consider. Before we close out today, I wanted to give you guys an opportunity to share anything that you found particularly surprising when you were presenting this report to clients in Australia. Sure. I I can chime in on that one, uh, Melissa. I guess one thing that surprised me, and we, we talked about this in the report, is is just the fact that unlike other markets, uh, it appears that asset owners, and in particular super funds, the superannuation schemes in Australia, have really played a um, essential role, a catalyzing role in the growth of the country's ESG market. So I think compared to other markets, you know, such as uh, you know Canada or the U.S., where growth has been a, driven by a combination of you know government policy or even the role of asset managers, I think it's pretty clear in the in Australia that uh, the super funds have been the primary driver. And we actually talk about this, as I said in the report, and we observe that Australia's superannuation schemes have been recognized globally as some of the most sophisticated ESG practitioners in the world. So the UNPRI recently announced their inaugural leaders group a couple months ago, and six Australian super super fund schemes were named to this prestigious group. And Australia had the highest number of um, uh, members in this group, trailing only uh, France. So really, uh, some some pretty impressive uh, strategies being deployed by Australia's super funds. Great. Well, thank you so much, Doug and Enrico, for chatting with us today. For more details on what we've discussed, please be sure to download our thematic research report, Navigating ESG Issues in Australia, Identifying Risks and Seizing Opportunities from our Knowledge Center on our website, www.sustainlytics.com. Thanks again for listening. 